loves the father loves his children too. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the son of God. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross, not by water only, but by water and blood. And the spirit who is truth confirms it with his testimony. So we have these three witnesses, the spirit, the water and the blood, and all three agree. Since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God has testified about his son. All who believe in the son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe that God was, has testified about his son. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever, whoever does not have God's son does not have life. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. If you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give that person life. But there is a sin that leads to death and I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning for God's son holds them securely and the evil one cannot touch them. We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and that he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God and he is eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. And that's our 21 verses and I needed a drink after that. So let's start by praying, hey? Heavenly Father, um, I think of that song we used to sing and it said, um, I'll let my words be few, Jesus, I'm so in love with you. I pray that over what I'm about to speak today. Let my words be few, but Jesus, may we all walk out of this place loving you more, knowing more of you and being your light more in the world that's out there. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, Andy asked me if I would be willing to come out and share with people today. And um, I have to be honest with you, I had a little bit of a freak out. I went into his office and I, he can attest to this. I said to him, I don't know what to say. I'm not a theologian. Um, uh, there's too much in this passage. There's so much going on here. Where do I even start? And he gave me this, um, I guess, writing, this chunk of writing that Mark and Reese had put together, who were both our theologian, very intelligent pastors. And um, that it was what I was supposed to cover today. And that made it even worse, let's be honest. <laughs> um, so we sat in his office and he talked to me about the idea of milk and meat in terms of Bible teaching. Um, and when I read this scripture passage, for me, I feel like there's too much meat. I feel like there's so much going on. It's really hard to kind of bring it all together and come up with what it's trying to tell us. It's kind of like when you go on a cruise ship. I don't know if anyone's been on one of those big cruise ships and you go upstairs to where they have the smorgasbord and they actually give you a giant plate, which makes the situation worse, let's be honest. And there's so many different types of food and so many different things you can try. And if you end up like me, you stand there and go, I'm not hungry anymore. I just can't do it. This is too overwhelming. So that's 
kind of what this scripture is like for me. So after I finished having my little freak out, I thought I'd sit down and I'd read each verse, verse by verse, and kind of try and come up with what the key messages were. And so I did that for our 21 verses. And then I did that for the whole book of 1 John. And what I noticed was that there are a number of points that are quite repetitive, that kind of come up again and again and again and again. Now, if you've done ministry with me before, um, you'll know there are parts of the Bible that I struggle with, not because I disagree with them or because they're not the truth. I believe the Bible is the word of God and truth. Uh, It's more about how things are written. So I quite often joke with people and I say, I can't wait to get to heaven to meet Paul because I want to have a chat to Paul. And the thing I want to talk to Paul about is the book of Romans. Because that book's great, don't get me wrong, there's great stuff in it, but it says the same thing over and over and over again. And then he twists it a little bit and he says the same thing over and over and over again. And I've been to uni a few times, I currently kind of work in a school, Um, and if I submitted an assignment that had one point, but it just said it all different ways over and over and over again, you'd fail, yeah? So why is our Bible written like that? People tell me that our biblical scholars, our biblical writers did that because they wanted to emphasize the point. They wanted us to get how important it was. Yeah, I understand that. But for me, I'm busy. I'm pragmatic. I'm logical. Let's make a point and move on. Yeah, so that's the plan for today. I'm going to pull out a key, a few of the key things that are said in this scripture. I'm going to make a point and I'm going to move on. So my first point. Part of the scripture should come up now. Yeah, the first part of the first verse. Let's start at the beginning. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. This seems pretty simple, right? Yeah? When we choose to believe in Jesus, we become one of God's children. Yeah? Can I tell you, I'm not about paying lip service. I'm actually about, let's be a little bit real. When we first started our senior youth ministry here at Mosaic Baptist Church, it was called Merge. And some of you were actually part of the leadership team back then. Uh, It was about 10 years ago. For the first six months, give or take, the kids left every week questioning whether they were Christian. Yeah. And we did that on purpose. It was good leadership. Um, You see, I think if we're all honest with ourselves and we actually be real, we will all have times where we don't feel Christian enough. Yeah. Where we don't feel like we read the Bible enough or we're holy enough or that we know God well enough. You know, there'll be times when we just don't feel good enough or we just don't feel like enough. There'll be times when we don't feel like children of God. And this scripture tells us that those feelings are lies, that those feelings are not from God. You see, this scripture tells us that by believing in Jesus, we are enough. And I guess I want to say to you, if you are someone who struggles with that feeling of, am I Christian enough? Am I enough? I pray that you can tuck the truth away somewhere in your heart, mind, soul, wherever it needs to sit. Jesus has made you enough by believing in his death, resurrection, his life, yeah, our relationship to him, that makes you enough. And it's as simple as that. Jesus is enough and he has made us enough. So that's my first point. Now there's a second half to my first point, like point 1B, and it's the second part of that first verse, which I'm hoping Chris is going to put up. Is it there? Maybe it's not. Let me just read it out to you. This is what verse part B of that verse says. Um, And everyone who loves the father loves his children too. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Sorry, I mustn't have put that on the slides. So Andy made this point a couple of weeks ago quite well, I think. He was saying this idea that our um, belief 
will change us is kind of like when we fall in love. So if you don't know me, I'm 40 and single, so I don't know if this is actually right, but it sounds right, yeah? When you fall in love with someone, there'll be things about you that change. So it might be that you start doing different activities because you do that with the person that you're spending time with. It might be that you change the type of movies that you like to watch, you know? Nothing crazy like Star Wars because that movie is terrible, yeah? But other types of movies, look at the shock on the face, yeah? It could be that you listen to a different type of music or something like that, yeah? And that's because you do that with the person that you spend time with. I found this little thing on Facebook, which I thought was really cute, which kind of gives a visual impression of what we're talking about here, yeah? Now, I'm going to take this a step further because that's what I do. Anytime you spend time with someone regularly, that person will have an effect on you. They will change you. So you see it in families, uh, close friendships, or even work relationships, yeah? You might take on someone's mannerisms or a figure of speech that they use, yeah? Uh, It might be even that some of your thinking will change because of how they think about things. And the same is true with our relationship with Jesus. When we spend time with Jesus, we will be changed. When we live out of a belief that we are children of God, we will be changed. So when we spend time in his presence, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, when we spend time in his word, when we learn about him, when we pray to him, when we talk to him and listen to him, we will be changed. So this idea, so we call that the transformational power of Jesus. And this passage tells us that when we love God, we will become more and more like him. We will obey him more and more simply because we become more and more like him. And this idea of obedience is one of the things that's mentioned a number of times in the passages that we're reading. So verse 18, it says, We know God's children do not make a practice of sinning. That's obedience, yeah? Verse 20 says, We know that he, Jesus, has given us understanding so we can know the true God. Verse 14, We are confident that he hears us, that's God, whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. Verse 21, Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. Can I tell you, I think, this is just my opinion, you can disagree with me, but I think this is probably one of the most key scriptures that we will ever come to know, verse 21, yeah? If we're going to memorize and apply one passage out of the Bible, I would argue that this is probably it. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. So as I read this passage in its entirety, the 21 verses, I keep coming back to the idea that the crux of what is being said is, We start by accepting Jesus into our life. Yep, that's what makes us enough. And then as we experience more of him and more of his love for us, we are changed. Now, I think sometimes as Christians, we get this a little backwards. We want to focus on behavior management or change management. Yeah, we want to focus on the idea if we're Christians, we can't do this, we can do this and we won't do this and we will do that. Yeah, but that's not what the focus is. That's an outcome. The focus is spending time with Jesus and coming to know him more and more and allowing him to be more and more in our lives. And the change has to flow out of that. So I'm going to address something here because I thought I couldn't leave it alone. That's who I am. Verses 16, 16 and 17. Do you ever have that, those experiences where you read the Bible and as you read it, you think to yourself, I have no idea what this means and what this is supposed to be saying to me. Yeah? Verses 16 and 17 were like that for me. So I think they should be on the screen, Chris. I did put those ones there. It says this, If you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give that person life. 
But there is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. So I don't know if you're like me. I hope not. Um, for your sake. <laughs> when I read this, I started thinking to myself, so who should I be praying for? And who shouldn't I be praying for? And what about if I get that wrong? And then I started thinking to myself, well, what is a sin that leads to death? And what is a sin that doesn't lead to death? And what about if I get that wrong? And then I was thinking to myself, well, what about if I'm the person who's doing the sin that leads to death and I don't realize it and I keep doing it because I don't realize it and no one's praying for me because they know it's a sin that leads to death. And so I started to get more and more anxious and I was overthinking things and getting more and more overwhelmed. So my practical brain stepped in and I decided to take a step back. And what I thought I would do is I would go and find some commentaries and some scholarly articles about these verses and see what people said they were trying to tell us, yeah? And so, well, can I tell you, as I sat and read all these articles and commentaries, there are a lot of people who have a lot to say about these two verses, yeah? And most of them don't agree with each other, so that's fun. But I did find this, and I thought it was really interesting, and I thought I'd share it with you. It says this, The sin that leads to death is to have a heart unchanged by God's love, and so to persist in acts, commitments, and convictions outside of his will. Now, I'm not saying that's the right definition. I'm not, as I said, I'm not a theologian or a scholar. But what I thought was interesting is this. It is saying if God's love isn't changing us, if it isn't changing what we believe or how we behave, how we spend our time or our resources, then that is sin. And I wonder if we ponder that for a moment on a real level, not just paying lip service, can you see yourself changing? How are you different from yesterday or last week or last month, last year, 10 years ago? Yeah? What is God teaching you about in your life right now? What's he disciplining you about? What's he working on in your life? What was your last conversation with God actually about? And if we struggle to answer those questions, yeah, what does that say for God's transformational love in our life? So that's my first point. Now I'm going to move on because that's what I said I'd do. The next thing I'm going to share about is this idea of what we know. And that's the topic for the five weeks, yeah? This 21 verses that we've read have mentioned the word know or talks about what we know nine times. And so these are some of the things that it says we know. Verse 2 says, we know we love God's children if we love God. Verse 10 says, we know in our hearts that Jesus' testimony is true. Verse 13 says, we know we have eternal life. Verse 15 says, we know God hears us when we pray. It also says in verse 15, we know he will give us what we ask for. Verse 18 says, we know God's children do not make a practice of sinning. Verse 19 says, we know we are children of God. Verse 20 says, we know the Son of God has come and given us understanding. Verse 20 also says, we can know the true God and have fellowship with him. Now, that's a lot of knowing, right? I think to myself, what would our lives look like if every day, day by day, in our decision-making and in how we lived our lives, we lived out of these knowing statements. And when I say knowing them, I mean them. I mean knowing them here. Not just at a head knowledge, but in our deepest parts. Think about some of the things that it tells us we know. It says we know we have eternal life. Now that's a life not that just starts when we die and go to heaven. It's a life that has fulfillment right now. What does our life look like if we live out that knowledge every day? What are the things that we focus on? What's important? What's not important? 
if this life is fleeting here on earth and we're going for an eternity in heaven, what are the things that really matter? Me and my sister, I live with my sister and we were yelling at each other the other day about how clean the house is. And when I read this scripture, I go, well, that's probably something that doesn't really matter. Yeah. What about the part where it says we know uh, God loves us, that we are his children. He hears us when we speak to him. What does our life look like if we live out that every day? If we know that God of the universe, creator God, God of everything, loves us and listens to us, wants to speak with us. More than that, he has chosen us, adopted us into his family. What does our life look like? I think if we live out that knowledge, we have a life that's full of freedom, right? We have a life that's not mediocre and life that's not safe, yeah? What does it say about how we think about ourselves or the other people around us when we live out of that knowledge every day? What about the where it says we, know, we can know the true God and have fellowship with him? If we lived out that every day, how would we pray? How would we spend time with God? What would be our priorities? Would you ever hear someone say, oh, I've been too busy to do a quiet time recently? Yeah? You see, for me, I think the truth is when we know in our deepest parts these knowing statements and we live them out, we have a different life. We live out of a place of confidence and freedom. and We live out of a place of victory that is very different to the world that we live in. Verses 4 and 5 says this. Should come up, I hope. For every child of God defeats this evil world and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now I'm going to very quickly make a point here before we go down the wrong track. Sometimes when we read the word defeat, this world, yeah, we can go into like a um, an idea of wars and battle and winning and things like that, you know, like Marvel and DC rivals and things like that. Yeah. Or the other thing we might do when we think about defeating the world is the idea that if we uh, can subdue the world, it will mean that we have power and authority and, you know, we can tell people what to do and then they'll do it. And that's what it means to, you know, defeat the world. Yeah. Or maybe we think about defeat the world and we think that defeating the world means having every experience under the sun and living every day to the fullest and leaving nothing in the tank at the end of the day. Yeah. Before we go down any of those paths, I want us to think, what did it mean for Jesus to defeat the world? How did Jesus defeat the enemy? He did it through love. Look, the simple answer to that is he loved his father in heaven enough to follow his will. That's it. And the same is true for us. I think we defeat the world when we love God enough to follow his plans. It's kind of that simple. I believe we can only ever know these statements, yeah? We can only ever have confidence and freedom when we trust God just like Jesus did, when we follow his plan just like Jesus did. Can anyone tell me you're a smart bunch? What does it say on the American currency, like on their banknotes, other than um, United States of America? In God we trust. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's in the middle there above the word one, if you can't see it. 
Now, I'm not making any comments about America or politics or anything like that. I'm not smart enough. All I want us to think about is, on the currency of our lives as Christians, can we stamp the words, in God we trust? Because we should be able to. Let me be brutally honest and talk out of my own life. I'm probably someone who has some trust issues, yeah? By probably, I mean 100%, but anyway. Um, And in my life, quite often, on the currency of Mandy's life, it would say, in Mandy, we trust. Now, can I tell you, I asked Micah, who most of you will know is one of our tech guys, to make me something like this. And he picked that photo, and I was like, that's the worst photo I've ever seen. But he wouldn't change it for me. So when you see Micah, tell him I said he's not a very nice man. Anyway... To tell you a funny story about In Mandy We Trust, in 2018, I was on a mission trip with this church um, and we we went to Indonesia with a group of young people. And I can still picture this in my head. I was walking down the street one day with a certain young man who will remain nameless and um, I nicknamed the road we were walking down the road of death because I don't know if you've ever been to Indonesia, but I cannot explain to you the traffic situation. Anyway... Imagine a narrow little road that goes downhill and the more traffic than you've ever seen in your life in, on the road, driving like crazy people. There's no footpath because they don't live that way over there. And you basically have got to walk down the side of the road like this with all the crazy traffic going on. And that's why I called it the road of death because most days I was not wanting to die on that road. Anyway, so we're walking along and this certain young man decides it's a great time to have a deep and meaningful conversation with me. And he was trying to give me some life advice. And he was basically saying to me, um, he was worried about me and he was worried that if I kept doing some of the things I was doing at that point in time, that I was going to end up getting hurt. And so, as I said, I can still imagine this in my head. My response to him was to lean over and pat him on his head because that's what I do when I think he's doing something stupid, right? So I'm patting him on his head and I said to him, you've got nothing to worry about. Don't worry about that. I've got it covered. I was basically saying... I'm a strong, independent woman. I am better than that, yeah? That wasn't my exact words. Can I tell you, in that situation, it was a moment of, in Mandy, we trust at its absolute finest. In that situation, within 12 months, I have to tell you, he was 100% right and I was wrong. And that's a very big deal in my life, yeah? (laughs) I was exactly in the situation within 12 months that he thought I was going to be in. He was worried that I was going to be hurt by someone and I was being hurt. He was worried that I was going to be um, not knowing what to do with myself and not coping and I wasn't really coping, yeah? My moment of in Mandy we trust had totally backfired. Most of you kind of know a little bit about my story but a short version of it is about five years ago I felt God say to me that he wanted me to leave my job I was working at Barnardo's. I'd been there for a decade. I was in a position of senior management. I really liked my job actually, but I felt like God was telling me it was time to leave. And so I did. Now people hear that story and they always go, oh my goodness, you have so much faith. That's so amazing. You trust in God. I wish I was like that. That's all polywaffle. It's not the truth. Um, Basically the truth is I'd been working as a semi-professional, I guess, for 20 odd years and I had a large pool of savings and I knew if I stepped out of the job, I would be able to fall back on that and I'd be okay. The funny thing about that story is within a few months of resigning and I hadn't gotten a new job at that stage, um, I felt like God was giving me the opportunity to give away a large chunk of that money. There was someone who I was supporting who was, um, 
exploring the opportunity to go into a mission position. And so they needed financial support and I really felt God was putting it on my heart to do that. And it was at that point I was scared because the narrative in my head was, what about if I don't have enough money? What about if I can't look after myself? In Mandy, we trust, right? In money, we trust. In financial security, we trust. In safety, we trust. 2019 was a terrible year for me. I lost my job as a chaplain. Thank you, ACT government. Love your work. Um, I lost my house. Thank you very much, my mum. I had a number of key, I guess, relationships in my life that changed where I thought people were something that they weren't. And um, for me at the end of that year, I think the hardest thing is I sat back and I thought to myself, I don't think I behaved in a way that was particularly God-honouring. I talked the talk about trusting in God, but I don't think I really walked the walk. I spent a lot of time in that year feeling anxious, I guess, and trying to figure out what was next and make things work. I spent a lot of time in that year being frustrated because I couldn't get things to work out the way I wanted them to and getting frustrated with people. I spent a lot of time complaining and feeling quite sorry for myself, yeah? And I basically just spent a lot of time being a bit of a yucky person to hang around with. Now, I know you're all better than me, yeah? Um, And you probably don't struggle with this stuff at all. But I have to say, I've shared some of this because I think there are many things in our life that we can choose to put our trust in. And maybe it is safety or financial security. Maybe it is your job. Maybe it is money. Maybe it is a relationship you have with someone. Or maybe you've just made your life so easy you don't, or safe that you don't have to worry about trusting in God day by day. I don't know. There's nothing about any of these things that are inherently bad. It's just that sometimes we can trust in things, which means that we don't put trust in God in the same way. That's why I said I think verse 21 is possibly the most important scripture we'll ever hear. Because it says, dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. So I wanted to ask you this question. Is there anything in your life that might be taking God's rightful place in your heart? Is there anything that you're trusting in that means that you're not trusting in God in the same way. So I wanted to wrap up today by offering some encouragement, yay, some positivity at the end. Every year I try to make a personal mantra, so it's not really a New Year's resolution, it's more like a vision statement for my year, yeah? And my 2020 mantra is this, it says, I think I put it up there, 2020 may not be a better year, but I'll be a better person. I believe that being a better person means choosing to trust God more. I believe it means refocusing our lives if we need to. I think it means figuring out what it is that we're trusting in and allowing Jesus to take his rightful place in our lives. And I wonder if you'll take on this challenge with me and make 2020 a year where we take our collective relationships as a group to a whole new level with Jesus by trusting in him more and more. And by living out of these statements, these knowing statements, more and more each day. So I'm going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we can trust in you. That there are many things that will let us down. Maybe that's even ourselves, but you will never let us down. I thank you that you long for us to have a fulfilled life, a life with meaning, a life with purpose. 
And I ask, Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would be present, that you would be leading us, that you would be guiding us, and that you would be helping us to make our way into the fullness of life that you long for us to have. Amen.